Word of God is a sketch artist. The more time I spend with it, the clearer I can see his character. There is endless evidence of his walking among us, but only when the sketch artist draws him out am I able to see who he is. Welcome to episode four of King Me Ministries podcast. I'd like to express some gratitude for those that have reached out and have encouraged me to keep going, and for those who have given me some great feedback, and for the conversations that have started in response to the episodes. I still have no idea what I'm doing here, but I'm enjoying the process. It's great having an outlet to share the things that I feel that God has taught me or that he's in the process of teaching me. I pray that through this process, I'm able to bring to him glory and to bring him into better focus in our lives. I once heard a story of a little kid having a conversation with his parents on the ride home from church on a Sunday. He said to his parents, is God really everywhere all at the same time? And dad responded quickly, of course he is. The little boy thought for a few seconds and added a follow-up question. If he's everywhere, then why don't we bump into him more often? Let that question linger in your life for a little bit. I love my pickup truck, and more importantly, my wife loves my pickup truck. But lately, I'm realizing that it's starting to smell a little bit more like our locker room than it did when it was new. We have more than a few water bottles rolling around in the back, and we always have some sort of sporting gear back there. You see, we have five kids at home, and sports are a pretty big part of our lives. We do travel softball, rec softball, high school softball, cross country, two kids on the volleyball teams, one playing on a couple of basketball teams, high school football, runs track, another plays on a couple baseball teams and is about to start youth football. There's one thing that I've recently noticed as our family participates in so many sports, and you can see it in the gear we buy and the practice equipment and the strategies that coaches practice with our kids. It seems that everyone who competes is looking for an edge. If you're a competitor, you're working to find something that will give you an advantage over your competitor. It's always a, how close can I get to the line without crossing? How close to cheating can I get without being considered a cheat? It's pretty acceptable in sports. Just this past weekend, the Cincinnati Reds phenom, Ellie De La Cruz, he had this knob on at the end of his bat. I've never seen it before, and the opposing manager clearly hadn't seen it before. So he challenges it with the umpires, and the umpires deem that it's unacceptable, at least pending further review from Major League Baseball. You see, he wasn't cheating. If he was, he would have been ejected from the game. What he was doing was attempting to gain an undiscovered edge with his bat, and so he got as close to that line of altering his bat as he could. Major League Baseball will let us know the ruling soon, I'm sure. Thankfully for him, he got a new bat, and he crushed a home run. That's sports, and that's what competitors do. They've been doing it for years. What I've also found is that Christians me included, try to apply this same principle to our walk with God. How close to the line can I get without going over into sin? What can I watch on TV and still appear to love Jesus? How far can I take this relationship without stepping into sin? How much can I fudge this report and still keep my integrity? God calls his followers to be holy, which means to be set apart and different, to pursue purity the opposite of being common or profane. That's what it means to be holy. It's a purposeful walk away from the line and towards God and his ways. 
In sports, we want to get as close to the line. In our walk with God, in our pursuit of holiness, the game really is how far away can I get from the line? A long while ago, I had a season of sin in my life. And as God always does, he disciplined me. He took something away from me that I had been dreaming of since I was the age of eight. He put me on a shelf for more than a couple years. The author of Hebrews tells us that this is what God does, and we shouldn't be surprised. He says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. I've got to tell you that I'm thankful for God's discipline in my life. It is truly one of the great assurances that I have that he loves me. Growing up, my dad had to discipline me often. I was not a great kid. I've always had a habit of learning things the hard way. My dad showed pretty strict discipline, but he left little doubt that he did it because he loved me. After doing many things worthy of discipline, my dad would tell me that I was going to get my butt spanked. And he told me to go to my room and then he would be up in 10 minutes. I got many of those spankings, and I deserved every single one of them. And one thing was constant each time that my dad administered that discipline. He always lingered, and he comforted me. He was a good man. In my experience, bad fathers discipline their children out of anger. God disciplines his children out of a love for them. His discipline is always motivated out of love and in an effort to bring us back to himself. During that season of sin in my life, God used a particular passage to bring me back to himself. That story is found in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. The background to that story is the story of the Israelites who were once captive as slaves for over 400 years in the nation of Egypt. And God raised up Moses to lead them out of bondage and into the promised land. Because Israel had rebelled against God not long after they were delivered, God disciplines them and he vows that that those responsible would never enter into the land that he promised. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And our story picks up just as they were reaching the end of those wandering years. They cross the Jordan River and they stand before the first of many nations that God will cast out and destroy. Moses is now dead and Joshua is the new leader and they stand before this massive city called Jericho. Now just a couple months ago, my wife and I had the privilege of having lunch right outside the city of Jericho. We could overlook this historic city. As we're eating, part of that story came back to my mind. The story was that that after God destroys this city, Joshua stood before it and he pronounced a curse on that fallen city. He said, At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. The Bible records that that is exactly what happened when it was rebuilt. So this city that we're having lunch at was once destroyed by the Israelites, and it was rebuilt at the cost of somebody's first son and last son. Our tour guide for the week said to us while we were eating lunch, he said, you guys look at that building over there? It's a massive building. And we're like, he's like, guess what it is? Now, obviously, a few guesses went out, but nobody guessed. He said it was a casino. He told us a unique story surrounding that casino. He said, the Israelites can gamble, but they're not allowed to have a casino in Israel. Palestinians can have a casino, but they can't gamble. 
And so the Palestinians, who are oftentimes enemies with the Israelites, have this casino, invite them over to gamble, lose their money, and then they go back. But the Palestinians, for whatever reason, decided it would be a good idea to go on the roof, shoot some rockets into Israel, and of course Israel stops going there because of that. I just think that was a great story. Well, the story goes that as these Israelites are ready to enter into this promised land that they've been waiting for for generations, God gives Joshua and the Israelites the command to march around this city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, he gives them the command to march around it seven times. When the priests blow the horns, the walls will come down and they are to enter in and conquer the inhabitants. And the saying goes, to the victor goes the spoil, but not in this case. This time God commands them. He says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction. God made it very clear that he was going to give them victory, supernatural victory. And when that victory happened, that they were not to take any of the devoted items that were inside of that city. There would be no plundering them. Everything was going to be devoted to God. It's important to note that the severe judgment that is brought against Jericho didn't come simply because they were in the way of God's people. It's important to understand that it came because the people of this city were in total rebellion against God and had been for generations. They not only rebelled against God, they celebrated their rebellion. And so God vowed to remove them from the land and bring in another nation. And so at first the Israelites obey God. They march around just as instructed. They see the walls miraculously fall down. They go in and they conquer the land that God had promised them. But the Israelites didn't fully obey God. Picking up the story in chapter 7, verse 1, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And as a result, God disciplines the nation. The story continues, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel. And told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. No doubt this was frustrating and confusing. They just see God deliver them against a massive opponent And they stand before this much smaller opponent and they get their butt handed to them. The leader of the Israelites, Joshua, tears his clothes and falls face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Isn't it interesting that Joshua's first inclination after the failure is to assume that God was the one that let them down? His first move was not to search himself and his countrymen to see if they had failed. The blame fell on God and God first. 
and how guilty we are of doing the same thing. There is something off in the human race when our gut reaction is to blame God before we even consider that the problem might lie with us and not Him. God's response has the tone of a father whose child is throwing a fit. The Lord responds to Joshua. He says, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. God goes on to say, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. The other morning, during my time with the Lord, it hit me that sin always seems to have this similar cycle. First, we sin, and that sin is covered. We conceal it and we hide it. Then, sin is exposed, either by our own confession or our sin finding us out. And it always finds us out, right? And then sin is covered again either by the blood of Jesus, or in rebellion, we continue to conceal it again. In my specific season of sin, I was brought to one of the hardest crossroads of my life. I could keep doing what I was doing, or I could have God. The choice was mine, but God had made one thing very clear to me. I could not have both my sin and be in a right relationship with Him. The Israelites had a choice to make. Did they want God? Were they willing to address the sin in their camp? It will also be the same for you. God will forgive your sin if you confess it to Him. We know that. He paid a huge price to enable you and I to be right with Him. He made a provision for our sin through the death and resurrection of His Son. But He made no provision for us to stay in our sin. We hear it often in our culture today. I was born this way. Maybe there's some truth to that, and that's why Jesus' words to Nicodemus ring true. You must be born again. God will always bring us to a crossroad and lay before us one of two options. You can go one of two ways. You can stay in your sin, or you can repent and start moving away from that behavior. You can stay in your sin, but God makes it clear that he will not be with you or I. In an effort to address the sin, God instructs Joshua to bring everybody out in the morning, and he's going to show them who sinned. And so God takes this whole nation and has it stand before him. He narrows it down to a single tribe, and then a single clan, and then a family, and finally to a single man. And that man is Achan. Joshua asks this man, Achan, what did you do? That is such a pivotal question for the Israelites, and it's pivotal for us too. What did I do? What is this distance that I feel between God and I? What caused that? What do I do when I feel that I'm distant from God? When I sense that God is not close, I don't ever assume that he's just too busy or just plain bored with me. I need to start with, what might I have done? What actions of mine might have caused me to be distant from God? Achan answers Joshua's question. He says that he took a beautiful robe, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold. Achan's sin was covered. He hid it well, so he thought. Now it's exposed, and now the decision must be made. What will we do with this sin? And Joshua's next question is, 
where are these things being kept? And Achan tells them that the items are hidden under it. The Israelites' response is another crucial moment in this story, and it will always be significant in our own story. Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. They didn't wait for the whole ordeal to be over. They addressed sin the way sin should be addressed. They addressed it immediately. In my Bible, you will find the word ran circled, and you will find in the margins a reference to Jesus' words in Matthew. God never changes. His expectations of how we are to address sin are, are clear. They never change. God expected specific response to sin, and Jesus reiterated it for us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Think about the violent action Jesus is telling his followers to take. Gouge out your eye if it causes you to fall away. Cut off your good hand if it causes you to sin and throw it away. If we were to take Jesus at his word, there would be a ton of us walking around that are blind, and most of us would be trying to use our feet to brush our teeth. Jesus is calling all of his followers to have a new relationship with sin, and that relationship is to hate it and to deal with it, no matter what the cost. Jesus does not intend for the world to be blind and without hands. He's telling us how we are to deal with sin, to get rid of it, to run from it, no matter the cost. In my story, it took me a long time to admit that there was sin in my life. I wanted to blame it away. I wanted to minimize it and say that it wasn't that big of a deal. But whatever might have been going on, I knew one thing. God was not close, and he brought me to the realization that he wouldn't be unless I destroyed whatever behavior that was going on that was destroying me. This scripture passage makes it clear that the size of sin in your life doesn't matter. Sin is sin. If you're thinking your sin is okay, then you're probably looking at holiness the same way you look at sports. If you think that holiness is a matter of not crossing the line and that it's okay to get as close as you can without stepping over, you are not pursuing holiness. You're trying to be good enough. You love the pleasure of sin, or at least the pursuit of sin but you want to remain in God's good graces. A buddy of mine once said, his name is Webby, you'll have him on, we'll have him on this podcast in a few weeks, but he said, if you're on the fence with God, just know this, Satan owns the fence. Take note of the size of the sin that the Israelites committed. 99.9% of the people acted faithfully to the command of God, yet he punished the entire nation for one man's sin. The book of Numbers states that there were at least 600,000 military-aged men in Israel. I'm not sure how many of those men God used to see the walls of Jericho come down, but we know that there were at least 600,000 available men. And God didn't say that a small portion of men sinned. He said one man. For one man, God removed his protection and his provision. And again, we serve a God who never changes. God still views sin the same way. A little bit of sin ruins the entire relationship. This means that your life can be 99% in order. But if there is sin in your camp, even the tiniest bit, the Spirit of God will stand in opposition to you. He will discipline you 
and he will do it because he loves you. So here's my challenge to you. If you're in sin and you know it, then you know that God is not pleased. His only desire for you is to turn back to him in repentance. And remember, repentance isn't feeling guilty or even being sorry. Repentance means to take the first step in a direction towards God and away from that behavior. Deal with the sin in the way that Joshua dealt with it. Run towards it. And like Jesus said, deal with it at all cost. Your soul is at stake. God's people experienced tremendous victory while they listened to and obeyed God. When they stepped out of obedience, they were alone. God was absent, and they could no longer stand against even the weakest of enemies. And finally, when they dealt harshly with the sin in their camp, God was close again and provided all they needed to once again stand in victory over their enemies. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your discipline in my life. I thank you for the discipline that always is given to us as a way to bring us back to yourself. It really does let us know that you love us enough not to let us destroy ourselves. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your commands and your rules that are used as guardrails to keep us close to you and keep us safe. As King David said, all of your rules and all of your precepts are good because they help us stay in line with you. And you have our best at heart always. Father, I pray that if there's sin in our camp now, that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would would bring it to our attention, that you would give us the courage to address it, and that we would take Jesus' words true, that we are to deal with it violently, because that sin wants to be violent towards us and our relationship with you. Father God, thank you for your great love for us. I pray that you are glorified through this podcast and each of them. We love you. We are desperate for you. We pray your continued blessing on our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for joining us again this week. I really do hope and pray that you see God's discipline as just this truest sense of his love for you. I hope also that you guys are going to join us again next week. We have something a little special, a little different. My wife will be my guest, and you won't want to miss her story as we look at her journey with God. It will be powerful. See you next week, and don't forget, if God is everywhere, and if we're paying close attention, then we should be bumping into Him often this week. Have a great week. Yeah.